0: We are celebrating heroes this month. Women who transformed America over the past 200 years. Remarkable women of notable achievements as far back as 1776 from the fields of social work, science, politics, sports, medicine, law, and adventure. Many who were hampered by constraints we can't imagine today. This is Larie Johnson. Join me as we look back and appreciate what they contributed. Their goal was not money or notoriety, but simply a better life for children, family, society, and the environment. They broke free from the stereotypical female role. Their independent spirits have made a difference for us today. We stand on their shoulders and we salute them this month. Women's History Month or, shall we say, Her Story Month. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion, and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. That's from Abigail Adams. She was born in 1744, lived in a time and place where women believed it was their Christian duty to serve and obey their mates. Educated entirely at home, She read widely in her father's large library, and the constant flow of interesting, intelligent, and well-educated guests in the Smith home turned her into a learned, witty young woman. She married John in 1764, and during the first 10 years of their marriage, Abigail gave birth to five children. But she and her husband John were enlightened thinkers who operated as equal partners and wrote each other as dearest friend. She managed the second decade of her marriage on her own as John participated in the colonial struggle for America's independence as a member of the Continental Congress and later as a representative of America in France. While he was away and often out of the country for a period of 10 years, Abigail managed the farm with rigid economy increased the family holdings, and educated her children. She found time to report exhaustively to her absent husband on the progress of the Revolutionary War. A fervent patriot, Abigail pressed John and his colleagues in Philadelphia to declare America's independence from the tyranny of Britain. In March 1776, when her husband prepared to gather with his colleagues to write a statement of principles that would soon be adopted by the Continental Congress as the Declaration of Independence, she also admonished the male framers of our laws not to, quote, put unlimited power into the hands of the husbands, since all men would be tyrants if they could, unquote. The right of women to vote was a position virtually unheard of at the time. She did, however, strongly support a woman's right to education. And in 1776, she wrote her husband that you need not be told how much female education is neglected, nor how fashionable it has been to ridicule female learning. She also favored the abolition of slavery. Abigail's husband, John Adams, was inaugurated as the second president of the United States. And although she often stayed in Massachusetts to run the family home, she involved herself in the most interesting political debates of the day. Abigail's life contributed richly to her legacy as the second first lady, an educated woman, a wife and mother of six children. She died in 1818, a woman before her time. And now, the foment of rebellion continues 200 years later. Any great change must expect opposition, because it shakes the very foundation of privilege," said Lucretia Mott. She was one of the most famous and controversial women in the 19th century America. Mott was viewed in her time as a dominant figure in the dual struggles for racial and sexual equality. She was a 19th century feminist, activist, abolitionist, social reformer, and pacifist, Who helped launch the women's rights movement. She was raised on the Quaker tenet that all people are equals. Mott spent her entire life fighting for social and political reform on behalf of women, the black community, and other marginalized groups. History has often depicted her as a gentle Quaker lady and a mother figure. But her outspoken challenges to authority riled ministers, journalists, politicians, urban mobs, and her fellow Quakers. Mott's deep faith and ties to the Society of Friends do not fully explain her activism. Her roots in post revolutionary New England also shaped her views on slavery, patriarchy, and the church, as well as her expansive interest in peace, temperance, Prison reform, religious freedom, and Native American rights. She co wrote the Declaration of Sentiments in 1848 for the first Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls, New York, which ignited the fight for women's suffrage. While Mott was known as the moving spirit of the first Women's Rights Convention at Seneca Falls, Her commitment to women's rights never trumped her support for abolition or racial equality. She envisioned women's rights not as a new and separate movement, but rather as an extension of the universal principles of liberty and equality. Mott was among the first white Americans to call for an immediate end to slavery. Her long-term collaboration with white and black women in the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society was remarkable by any standards. Mott also helped found the co-educational Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania in 1864. Lucretia Mott was an amazing woman whose work and ideas inspired the transformation of of American society in a time when women's roles were restricted to hearth and home. Lucretia died in 1880 at the age of 87. The work of this remarkable woman continues today after 150 years. The Shoshone woman born in 1788 near present-day Salmon, Limhi County, Idaho near the Continental Divide at the present-day Idaho-Montana border. Reliable historical information about Sacagawea is very limited. At about age 12, she was captured by the Hadatsa Indians and then sold at about age 13 into a non-consensual marriage to Toussaint Charbonneau, a Quebec trapper. Charbonneau, along with his young wife in her teens, helped the Lewis and Clark Expedition in achieving their chartered mission with objectives of exploring the Louisiana Territory. Sacagawea traveled with the expedition thousands of miles from North Dakota to the Pacific Ocean, helping to establish cultural contacts with other Native American people they met along the way, and contributing to the expedition's knowledge of natural history in different regions. On November 4th, 1804, Clark recorded in his journal, quote, a Frenchman by name Charbonneau, who speaks the Indian language, he wished to be hired. We engaged him to go on with us and take one of his wives to interpret the snake language, unquote. Lewis recorded Sacagawea giving birth on the trail to a son, Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau, on February 11, 1805. On May 14, 1805, a few months later, with a newborn, Sacagawea rescued items that had fallen out of the capsized boat, including the journals and records of Lewis and Clark. The Corps commanders who praised her quick action named the Tsikagawea River in her honor on May 20, 1805. By August of that year, the Corps had located a Shoshone tribe and was attempting to trade for horses to cross the Rocky Mountains. They used Tsikagawea to interpret and discover that the tribe's leader, Kamowait, was her brother. The trip across the Rocky Mountains was rough, with very little food and harsh weather conditions. As the expedition approached the mouth of the Columbia River on the Pacific coast, Sacagawea gave up her blue-beaded belt to enable the captains to trade for a fur robe they wished to bring back to give to President Thomas Jefferson. All members of the expedition, including Sacagawea and Clark's black manservant, York, voted on November 24, 1805, on the location for building their winter fort. They voted to cross the Columbia River and build a fort where the present day Fort Clatsop Replica is located. She is not only the first woman to vote, but also the first Indian woman to vote. Sacagawea had significant value to the mission because having a woman and an infant accompany them demonstrated the peaceful intent of the expedition. Although her death date is uncertain, It is believed to be in 1884. Sacagawea may have faded into his story until the early 20th century when the National American Women's Suffrage Association adopted Sacagawea as a symbol of women's worth and independence, erecting several statues and plaques in her memory and doing much to recount her accomplishments. It's a remarkable her story. The debt that each generation owes to the past, it must pay to the future, said Abigail Scott. She was born 1834 and traveled 2,400 miles over the Oregon Trail in 1852. It was called the Great Migration West. Abigail, age 18, was the oldest, and her father asked her to keep a journal of their travels. Along the way west, Both her mother and younger brother died. They had to be buried, leaving them behind along the trail. After arriving in Oregon, Abigail taught school for a year, then married Benjamin Dunaway in 1853. They homesteaded in Oregon. Her husband, Ben, was permanently disabled due to an accident, so she took on the role of breadwinner. By statehood in 1859, she had given birth to three of their six children. She completed her first novel during this period, Captain Gray's Company, or Crossing the Plains and Living in Oregon, which was Oregon's first commercially published novel. Abigail spoke many times throughout the Northwest, reportedly giving 140 public lectures, mainly across Idaho from 1876 to 1895. Traveling over 12,000 miles by river, rail, stagecoach, and buckboard. A woman with a mission, despite difficult travel conditions and not in luxury. She had a supportive husband who managed the home and the children while she campaigned. Idaho gave women the right to vote in 1896 with twice the votes in favor. Idaho was the fourth state granting suffrage to women after Wyoming, Colorado, and Utah. Then Washington followed in 1910. However, the women of Oregon had to wait until November 1912, a few days after her 78th birthday. It can be said, it is never too late. The biggest opponent to women's suffrage in Oregon was her own brother, Harvey Scott, the influential publisher of the Oregonian newspaper. His critical columns cast aspersions on the subject of women having the right to vote and making laws to benefit all citizens. Since only men could vote up until that time, it took courageous men to sway the vote in favor of the women, with almost double the votes in favor of suffrage for women." Abigail was the first woman in Oregon to vote in 1912. She is often called the Mother of Oregon because of her 40 years of tireless efforts to enfranchise women. And yes, she was also a wife and a mother of six. She had amazing determination to see progress. There were many other nameless women who worked alongside her, or that convince the men in their lives that women must have the right to vote. We are standing on their shoulders today, and we must pay it forward. There is still so much work to be done. There will never be a new world order until women are a part of it. That was Alice Paul who said that. She was born in 1885, was a descendant of William Penn, the Quaker founder of Pennsylvania. She began her life as a studious girl from a strict Quaker family in New Jersey with a Quaker tradition of public service. Her mother was a member of the National American Woman Suffrage Association, known as NASA, N-A-W-S-A. At the age of 22, a scholarship took her to England, where she became passionately devoted to the suffrage movement there. Upon her return to the United States, Alice became the leader of the militant wing of the American suffrage movement, known as the Silent Sentinels. She was one of the main leaders and strategists of the campaign for the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which prohibits sex discrimination in voting. She worked alongside Lucy Burns and other courageous women for events such as the Women's Suffrage Procession in Washington the day before President Wilson's inauguration in 1913. Alice and her followers were the first protesters to picket the White House in 1917. She often suffered police brutality and other physical abuse for her activism, always responding with nonviolence and courage. She was jailed many times under abhorrent conditions for their participation in the silent sentinels, the first to protest in front of the White House. The women went on a hunger strike were restrained and force-fed raw eggs and milk, causing great physical trauma. Years before Gandhi's campaign of nonviolent resistance and decades before civil rights demonstrations, Alice Paul practiced peaceful civil disobedience in pursuit of equal rights for women. With her daring and unconventional tactics, Alice eventually succeeded in forcing President Woodrow Wilson and a reluctant U.S. Congress to pass the 19th Amendment in 1920, granting women the right to vote nationally. An amazing film, Iron-Jawed Angels, is worth seeing. Alice Paul is portrayed by Hillary Swank. Alice Paul and other members of the National Women's Party successfully lobbied to include equality provisions in the United Nations Charter, such as the phrase, quote, the equal rights of men and women and of nations large and small, unquote. Her main focus of equality continued until her death at age 92 in 1977. President Barack Obama designated Seawall Belmont House as the Belmont Paul Women's Equality National Monument, named for Alice Paul and Alva Belmont. The University of Pennsylvania maintains the Alice Paul Center for Research on Gender, Sexuality, and Women. Paul was posthumously inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 1979. The Alice Paul Institute keeps her legacy alive with educational exhibits about her life, accomplishments, and advocacy for gender equality. Opinions differ most when there is least scientific warrant for having any. That's from Daisy Bates. She was born in 1914. She had a hard childhood. As an infant, her mother was raped and murdered by three white men. They were never prosecuted. Her father abandoned her as a young child. She was adopted and cared for by family friends. Orly Smith, a World War I veteran, and his wife. In her book death of my mother. She recounted this heinous crime. Growing up, she had hatred in her heart for white people. Her adopted father told her, quote, you're filled with hatred. Hate can destroy you, Daisy. Don't hate white people just because they're white. If you hate, make it count for something. Hate the humiliations we are living under in the South. Hate the discrimination that eats away at the South. Hate the discrimination that eats at the soul of every black man and woman. Hate the insults hurled at us by white scum. And then try to do something about it, or your hate won't spell a thing. Despite her very difficult beginning, she married and she and her husband started one of the only African-American newspapers in 1941, the Arkansas State Press, a weekly statewide newspaper. This Little Rock newspaper was solely dedicated to the civil rights movement. She served as the arts president of the NAACP. She was influential in working for school integration. A significant role of Bates during the civil rights movement was the advocating and mentoring of the Little Rock Nine. Bates' house became a National Historic Landmark in 2002 because her role during the desegregation of schools. The perseverance of Mrs. Bates and the Little Rock Nine during these turbulent years sent a strong message throughout the South that desegregation worked. The perseverance of Mrs. Bates and the Little Rock Nine during these turbulent years sent a strong message throughout the South that desegregation worked and the traditional of racial segregation under Jim Crow would no longer be tolerated in the United States of America. Bates moved to Washington, D.C. and worked for the Democratic National Committee. She also served in the administration of U.S. President Johnson, working on anti-poverty programs. Time for a Showdown, written by John Lewis Adams, is a biography chronicling the rise of Bates and her husband and their influence on Black activism in the 1950s. In 1962, she received national recognition as the long shadow of Little Rock. She was awarded the Medal of Freedom in 1999 for her lifetime contributions. Daisy Bates, is an example of seeing a wrong and working on making a right. She died in 1999, but she certainly cast a long shadow for her 85 years. Madam C.J. Walker said, I got my start by giving myself a start. She was plain Sarah Breedlove, born into freedom in 1867, just out of the Civil War years. She was orphaned by the age of seven and started working as a child as a domestic servant. I had little or no opportunity when I started out in life. Having been left an orphan, she had only three months of formal education, married at age 14, had one daughter, and widowed at age 20. She was a dollar fifty a day washerwoman by the age of 34. A widow at age 20, a sharecropper's daughter, and at the very moment in the late 1890s when she perceived a way out of all that, she happened, according to one account, to be trudging across Eads Bridge in St. Louis with a basket of laundry balanced on her head her head. Cosmetics for the hair would feed her daughter and herself. Sarah spent the next several years devising secret formulas for a system of hair care for her black neighbors. Coming up with five salves and soaps, salve for ringworm and eczema, a hair restorative, coconut oil shampoo, temple salve for receding hairlines, and her pressing oil, called Glossine, for straightening and grooming hair. Moving to Denver to manufacture her products, Sarah married a newspaper man, C.J. Walker, and began doing business as Madam C.J. Walker. Carrying a little stove to heat her special design pressing comb, she went into door-to-door sales, a world few women and no black woman had entered. Black housewives were delighted to see her representatives, and so eagerly did they buy tins of her hair care products from Sarah and her Walker agents that Madam C.J. Walker became the nation's first black woman millionaire and a philanthropist with several beauty colleges and factories bearing her name. She also became known for her philanthropy and activism, She made financial donations to numerous organizations, such as the NAACP, and she became a patron of the arts. As an advocate for black women's economic independence, she opened training programs in the Walker system for her national network of licensed sales agents who earned healthy commissions. Between 1911 and 1919, During the height of her career, Walker and her company employed several thousand women as sales agents for its products. By 1917, the company claimed to have trained nearly 20,000 women earning their own living. Walker bequeathed nearly $100,000 to orphanages, institutions, and individuals. Her will directed two-thirds of future net profits of her estate to charity. She died in 1919, just before women got the right to vote. Madam C.J. Walker lived through great struggles and amazing successes unknown to women at that time. This has been Laurie Johnson. Music by local pianist and composer Jennifer Gutenberger is gratefully acknowledged. This program is produced for KMUN in celebration of Women's History Month. You can find the podcast for this program at KMUN.org.